We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Were you at the uh, Serena Osaka U.S. Open final? You know I was at the Serena Osaka U.S. <laughs> Open final. I saw final. you there. <laughs> um, do you, this is a difficult question for you. I imagine you probably don't want to answer this, but do you think the, the chair umpire uh, called that match fairly? The chair umpire called the match by the rule. So for him, he gave the warning. She broke a racket. It was a point. She had an outburst that was uh, negative towards him, and it ended up being a game. That's not really where the argument comes in for Serena. The argument was for her that she felt that she wasn't being coached, and that right, it began he shouldn't with, have gotten. It began she with shouldn't the, have gotten a warning. Right. So, do you think that had, initial had, call was correct? I think it was a a bold move by any chair umpire in the finals of a Grand Slam when. Coaches are coaching all the time. Y'all know how much I love tennis. I'm out in the court almost every day. It's a big part of my life, big part of my family's life. So every once in a while, I got to squeeze in an interview about tennis on the show. And today we've got a great one. Wimbledon is going on. So I brought out my friend Katrina Adams, who played professional tennis throughout the 90s, got to 67 in the world in singles, reached the fourth round of Wimbledon once and in doubles. She reached number eight in the world and the semis of Wimbledon. Wow. She was also, after she retired, the president of the USTA, the governing body of American tennis. Here we're going to talk about Serena versus Osaka at the U.S. Open and what it was like for Katrina to play at the highest level and how Katrina positioned herself to become the president of the USTA. It's Katrina Adams on Touré Show. had an extraordinary playing career before we even get to being president of the usta you were 67 in the world in singles eight in the world in doubles Uh, you know had extraordinary college career as well just for starters for players who are listening what can they do to become better 
Well, I mean, I was very fortunate. First of all, thanks for having me. But I, I was very fortunate to have had the career that I did. I mean, I didn't get into the sport to be a professional tennis player. Um, you know, unlike today, these parents are putting their kids in to be a professional tennis player. But I grew up in, a, in on the west side of Chicago. I stumbled upon the, the sport with uh, the boys' club. The Martin Luther King Boys' Club had tennis as the activity for that summer. My brothers were in the program. I ended up being a tag-along sister. And, um, you know, did really well once I begged my way into the into the program because I was too young. But one of the coaches thought I had potential and kind of took me under his wing, worked with me for a couple of years and took me to his mentor. And, you know, I had progressed and became a, a, a competitive tennis player as a junior, you know, high school state champion twice, Northwestern University. So I think for for people today, the most important thing is that the kid is in the sport for themselves and that they're having fun. I mean, it's great to introduce them to the sport because if our kids don't get introduced to the sport by our parents and they're not going to come sign up for themselves, hey, I want to be in your program. Um, but once they're in it, make sure that they actually enjoy it and that they like it and, and it's something that they want to do and and maybe not look to the sky right from the start, but just to enjoy it, have fun and develop. And as they're developing, then that's when you can determine, hey, you know. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pretty good at this. Take me a little deeper into what 
you feel you did right? I mean, I know just for my game, uh, which is nowhere near the level that you've achieved, but just for my own personal being better than I was yesterday, working a lot on conditioning made a big difference. And I, I hung out with James Blake and he was like, stop running two, three miles, run sprints. Yeah. And when I started doing that, it made a massive difference on the court. And I had never done that in my life. So I'm like, if some younger person came to me, I'd be like, run a lot of sprints, like short sprints. That's what we do in tennis. Short sprint, change direction, go back. Right, yeah. Like that, not running, Don't never run two, three miles straight. That's nothing. And I wonder what it is that you know or what little things worked for you that made you a better player. Well, it's very interesting because I started – I started playing tennis in the mid seventies and 75. So by the time I was playing really competitive in juniors, you know, 10 years later, or actually it was a lot sooner than that. But, um, by the time I, gra I graduated from high school in 85 and fitness wasn't really that nope. big of a deal. Nope. In before, before never to Right. Exactly. So she changed that early eighties, mid eighties, you know, where it became a big deal. So yeah, I was, running distance and I hated running I, I hated working out I just wanted to go on the court I go and practice all day but I didn't want to do the sprints that we had to do in the class or I, I ducked out of most of them but fast forward you're a professional you realize that you you need to be stronger you need to be um, more fit and so yeah it was those short sprints I did a lot of uh, resistant running like with a parachute wind sprints um, you did a lot of workout with the bands on your on your ankles, you know, doing lateral movement, cutting, all those kind of things, and then, you know, take them off and doing those fast uh, fast twitch moves. A lot of short sprints, you know, 10 yards or just the spider drill, we call it, on the mm -hmm. court. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But a mass, yeah, different, different parts. Of the court. So mm -hmm. you're cutting, you're running, you're cutting, you're running, you're cutting. You're staying low. Um, so those are, those are the things that I got into as I develop into a professional player. Um, and throughout my career, things started to evolve and you started to do more in the gym. And, you know, I used to run hills and I lived in Houston. So I used to run, we had this hill that was built, um, that my fellow athletes, my rockets and my oilers and other athletes that lived in Houston, you know, we were out there working with this older gentleman. We called him doc. Um, he was a senior Olympian. I mean, he was just the fittest guy in like his seventies and he's out there training these 20 plus you know, 30 and under professional athletes. But it was exciting. It was an opportunity for me to also work with other athletes to see what they're doing. And, and things weren't that dissimilar. The, dis the Where we separated was the amount of weight we were lifting. Because okay. they're bulking up and okay. getting stronger. And I'm trying to be that. strong but lean. Yeah, um, but for the running yeah, really. For endurance, yeah. exactly. So it was, uh, it was challenging. But, uh, you know, Things are so far more advanced today yeah. for the young players that are coming up um, with all the dynamic stretching and dynamic moves. Uh, it's it's tedious, but it, it it's necessary to be the best. We we as tennis players really don't need the muscles, right? It's so much of about his timing. I used to practice with this fourteen year old girl who hit two hands up both sides and hit the ball harder than any man I knew. And, you know, she was wiry. She probably couldn't push me off the spot, but she had the timing, had the hip right, just perfect time. She could whale the ball, right? So we don't need to bulk up. We need to get the timing right. Timing is definitely important, but you need the strength for the endurance. Right. So when you're building up the muscle, it's you're, you're elongating the muscles. It's the endurance that's in that muscle that you need to continue to pound 
every shot, you know, for hours. Yes. Um, and, and so that's you're you're naturally actually developing certain muscles just by being on the tennis court. Yeah. And and so, but that's important. But you still need to be in the gym. Um, like I said, not to pump up. But it's, I mean, you look at Rafa and you look at, you know, Oof. even Novak is very lean, but he's yes, muscular. Absolutely. You look at all the, the tennis players, particularly their legs, and, and you don't really get to see the guy's legs in tennis. Right. I think they have some of the best looking legs in our sport sure. because they're so lean and they're so cut. But their shorts are so long, you don't really get to see it. You know, Rafa's shorts have started to creep back up and you can start to see the definition at the bottom of his quads uh, and the hams. Etc. But you know, for the girls, it's just as important. Yeah. When you think back on your playing days, is there a match that uh, you know that you go back to that was you know you played all four majors multiple times? Is there something that you know that you remember like that one was epic when I played her? And it was three hours, three sets. What like something that really like? Yeah. So I would say the first one that stands out is uh, my rookie year, I played Chris Everett in the fourth round of Wimbledon wow. on the graveyard court, which was the best court to play on if you're not playing on center court. Um, because that's where you could do. What year you had was that? 1988. Oh, so, so late, late, late in her career. She was one year from retiring. Wow. And But she was still seated yeah. three or four. I don't know. She was yeah. top four. And, um, and I was a rookie. I had gone to college. I had my freshman, sophomore. 15, 20, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> you know, a little, 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 little overweight to be a professional athlete. And I was winning, and I ran out of gas. What what, what was the score when you were winning? Uh, I won the first set 7-5. It was 3-all, and then I lost 6-3, 6-0. But I was up 5-3 in the first set. I looked oh, up at really, the scoreboard. You, you really I saw Chris Everett Lloyd, 3, <laughs> Katrina Adams, 5, and I was like, oh, crap. I'm about to win this. I'm about to win. I'm going to the quarters worst thing you could ever think about but you learn from that right you learn from that and um credit to Chrissy she never played me took her a while to to figure me out and then once she figured my game out and I got a step slower you know it was easy a a lot easier for her so that was that's the first big one and then I had another one maybe a year later I was playing Helena Sokova at the Virginia Slams of Boca Raton and I lost in three tiebreak sets and I had a couple match points and and in the tie break and you know and I can remember those points vividly I'm the I'm the player that remembers all those shots um but it was it was a turning point that could have catapulted me Mm -hmm. to that next level Mm -hmm. you know to be that top 20 player that I should have been um but it didn't and you think I in and so as opposed to really learning from it I'm right on the brink I just need to work harder you you start to say, oh, I've arrived. I'm here. I just I lost my two points, and then you take a step back as opposed to pushing yourself harder. Mm. And I had a tough couple months after that, you know, with with the matches because I just expected to win. I didn't go out and work as hard as I needed to to win. Um, and that's what you learn early on in your career. And then of course I got it together and 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 started to propel back. But those would be two key matches, both of which I lost. Sure. You know, I could talk about matches that I, I beat number three players in the world. Um, Who's your well, favorite vict- what's your favorite victory? Uh, I would have to say in doubles with over Martina and Pam Shriver. Wow. I mean, you can't, you can't go wrong with that. Is that the best female doubles team of all time? Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. they won 110 matches straight. I think one uh, over a Were couple you years with Zena Garrison or that. No, I actually beat her. Zena and I lost to her. Lost to them. My rookie year, we lost to them in the quarters of the French Open. I'll never forget it because you're like, oh my gosh, that's Martina Navratilova and Pam Shriver. Uh, but you know, we played well, and they just outplayed us. Um, as they were, this is they were still in the streak. Um, I, I beat them with. Uh, Mercedes Paz, an Argentinian player. Okay. And, um, yeah, I think actually Zena and I did beat him once, and I think Lori and I beat them once. Lori McNeil. Yeah. Another great player yeah. from Houston. Yeah. Um, but I but I lost to them. I think, you know, we may be five, batting 500 as far as – because I just – I always rose to the occasion. When yeah. you're playing the best – you rise up to the occasion. I gotta, I gotta look at my stats. On how that do you, one. how do you do that? Like you are going out to play Chris Everett, who has been a superstar since you were a kid, right? She was big in the early '70s, so you probably grew up thinking about her. You know, I maybe... played with a racket, dude. I had the Chrissy Everett Wilson autographed racket. So when you, <laughs> you played with her racket. You've watched her since you were little, and now she's on the other side at Wimbledon. Yeah. Like, how do you get the mind in place to be like, let's go do what we know how to do? Well, I think, you know, first of all, it's all about confidence. I mean, I've never been short of confidence from a very young age. Uh, so for me to go out there and say, you know, yeah, that's Chris Everett. That's Chrissy on the other side. But, you know, I'm here to do the same thing that she's trying to do. And that's win. And and as long as you know that you have what it takes to win, that helps that belief system get stronger and you're building that confidence. So, I went out there that day thinking that I was going to win. I put myself in a very good position to do that. But physically, I didn't have what it took, which mentally broke me down. And I think that's the most important thing that athletes, our tennis players, our young players in particular, you know, if you know that you're not in the best shape, mentally you start to alter your game because you're trying to take shortcuts save energy, no, so et cetera. You can't, you can't think exactly. fully when you're tired. But if you're fully fit, I mean, I remember when I finally got myself fully fit, I never, I never ever felt really tired. I never felt that I couldn't go the distance. Do you block out that it's Chris Everett or Martina Navratilova, or do you fully embrace who it is? You respect that when you go on the court, but once you're on the court, it's all about execution. So it doesn't really matter who's on the other side because technically you're supposed to be playing the, pa- playing the ball, right? not the person. Right. But that takes a very strong mind and a strong um, mental toughness to be able to separate the two. And that's, that's what separates the top ten from the rest of the punt, bunch. That. Because that ability to be able to go out and say, hey, I'm playing the ball, you know, to be able to separate who's on the other side of the net. You know, you know – Venus and Serena had that it factor when they first came out where the players were like, man, I'm playing Venus or Serena. You know, I'm playing for second best. They just felt that they couldn't beat them. Mm. Right? Well, it took a couple years, right? Because they're right. out there 14, early 15. On. Well, the well I mean, when, they became, when they became the number one and number yeah. two in the world. Yeah. But not were, until, but not until were, five years ago did people start to say, oh, wow, I have a chance. I mean, they were physically, when they reached that elite level, they were physically stronger than everybody else. So they were Absolutely. Do, like when Martina took the sport to another level, they both took the sport to the another, and everybody else had to catch up. Yes. So, you know, so that's when you, when you look at 
some of the early prime years when you had Hingis and Serena and Venus and Kornikova and Capriati. They're playing little kids. Yeah, they're, I mean, they were pipsqueaks compared they were, to... But they were all the same age. Right. But physically, they were that much stronger. And, and that's where, you know, that's where that being stronger and, and you know, fitter really comes into play because they could wear down their opponents with their power. So I, I just... I, what is Chris Everett when she's out there and she's at her, what is she doing so well that she's able to be number one or two for you know so long? What is what is what is she doing when you're on the other baseline again? First her? of all, she never missed. You know, she she could dissect the court with precision. Um, you know, she disguised her shots very well. So you really so you didn't, didn't know where it was going. You didn't know where it was going. You really, and this is pre-video days when you could actually like study patterns. So you were really surprised a lot when you hit it to the forehand corner and you really don't know if it's cross court, coming cross quarter down the line? I mean, in certain instances, you're, it depends on, the, depends on the rally. But I mean, you know, there, there were times where I would give her two feet to thread the needle for a passing shot and she hit it within one foot. Right. So it's like, Precise. oh, wow, that's good. Right. You know, right. and, and so hat. then right. you start to realize that <laughs> that's freaking Chris Everett on the other side of the court, you know, and and shots that might have been winners against other players. It wasn't it. that she was so fast, but she anticipated she saw it so early that she was there waiting for certain shots. And and, you know, you just have to applaud and, and bow down and say, wow. And that's what the top players do they see the ball so early? They anticipate so early, and nowadays they're so fast that it's just very hard to get the ball by. Anticipation is not some magical thing. It's something that I've, I've been thinking a lot eight. over the last yeah. year. If I'm looking at you and seeing the, the angle of your body, the angle of the ball, I know like you're not going to hit that down the line. You're probably going to hit that right. I mean, like you could see if the racket starts to slow down. It's got to be a drop shot or a short ball. Like you, if you're paying attention to the other player. Right. But you have to be very astute to even be able to focus on that, because a lot of times you're focus on focusing on recovery. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get back to my position. I'm watching the ball, but I'm not really watching everything that's happening with the player that's about to hit the ball. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's part of that anticipation, understanding the angles. You have to understand the angles of the court. Sure, that's part of anticipation. So you know, on certain shots, there's no way that this player should be hitting this ball over the highest part of the net, down, down the line, the line right. on a low ball. Right. They have to come back cross court. Right. So those are the little things that you just have to know. Even if down the line is wide open, you've got to cover down the cross court it, shot. And if they go down the line, more than likely they're going to have to open up the face and slice it, Right. of which I can see that, and then I can start to recover to that side of the court. You, are you really watching the racket or the body? Uh, it. it for me, it was more about the racket yeah. because that's where the ball is going to make contact yeah. to. If I'm watching the body, then I'm not looking at the ball. Right, right. Um, Martina, Martina Navratilova, what did, what did she do greatest. so well? She had she had that confidence. She had that it factor. You know, she was a lefty. She served in volley. She Speed. put the pressure on you at all times. Um, yeah, she could run down anything. And she just forced you into error after error if she wasn't hitting the winners. And she wasn't the most powerful player compared to today, but she was as far as her timing, you know, serve and volley. She 
rushed you with her movement on the court more so than with her power. She rushed you. Right. She took away your time. Took away your time. She's taking the ball on the rise. She's Take, stepping into the court. Absolutely. So and she's cutting off those angles. She's not playing five feet behind the baseline. That gives put, you time to catch one up. To two feet away from the baseline. If not on the baseline or well inside the court because her focus was finishing the point at the net. Mm, mm. And... You know, and, and, and mentally, again, that's Martina Navratilova, you know, and you're, you know that the pressure is always coming. You know that she's going to hit her target on this serve. I must make this return. It's my only chance. Boom, you miss it or she hits an ace or what have you. So, uh, you know, it was a pleasure to really, you know, the older you get and, and you're friends with these people, you realize what an honor it was to have played in that era, to have played on the same court with them, uh, win or lose. It's just you, uh, you you learn to respect who they were then, but even more so now. I always ask people the difference between, you know, being good in your industry and being great, right? right. You get to 67, that is great, right? There's thousand players ranked 10,000 players trying to make it as a pro uh but you see like I had the ability to get a little to be higher and I didn't get there so why did you not get higher why did you not get into the top 20 yeah I think it was I think I was complacent in where I was I was complacent in in my work ethic I worked hard but I could have worked harder um and I know that and you know I was a stubborn player I wanted to do things my way I was a serving volleyer, chip and charger. I could have had a better forehand, but I didn't. I didn't work on it as well as I probably as much as I probably could have, even though my coaches drilled it in me and we were hitting forehands all day. But psychologically, that was not, you know, I didn't want to be out there just hitting big forehands all over the place. I wanted to get to the net. And I love taking the pace off. I love using variety um, in that. But I was also, um, you know, I was a socialite. I love hanging out with, with my peers, with my friends. And not that that was a bad thing, but I think, you know, when you look at the top 10 players, you know, they kind of kept to themselves. Focus, and yeah. and it wasn't that I didn't feel that I couldn't be focused, but when you, in hindsight, when you look back, it's like, but would I have sacrificed that? Would I have wanted to change that? No, because I, I don't think I would have accomplished the things that I've done since then. You know, if I had stayed in my lane, if you will, um, and not been so adventuresome and and creating friendships and hanging out. And most of my friends were foreigners. They weren't even the Americans because, you know, it's I looked at the camaraderie that the foreign players had. And I love that atmosphere, even though we were individual. They were almost a team. They were supporting each other. They were going to have dinner with each other. Whatever that was. I was very fortunate when I turned pro that Zena Garrison took me under her wing. Okay. And we played doubles. I shared a coach with, with, with her. We shared rooms in the first year or two. So we kind of did everything together as she was trying to teach me how to be that professional. And I'm very grateful for that. But I also wanted my own little niche or my own other friends. And, and maybe that took away that, that focus that I needed. You know, I joined the WTA um, Players Association board in my sophomore year I got really involved on the political side and wanted to learn more about the business of the sport and how we operated and, and what we did um, so as opposed to maybe being on the court for an extra hour of practice or in the gym 
I'm sitting in a meeting on, on any given day. And, but that was my choice. And I, I think, you know, when I look back on it, I wouldn't trade any of that in for the world because of the experiences that I got. We'll get back to the show in one second, but right now I want to give a shout out to longtime supporter of the show, Policy Genius, who wants you to know that they know that adulting is hard. There's lots of things that you have to do as an adult that you don't want to do, like catching a red-eye flight, working really late, working at all, visiting in-laws, getting life insurance. This is not what you wake up in the morning wanting to do, but you have to do it because when you have life insurance, you have that peace of mind that somebody's got your back in case something goes wrong. You can take care of your family no matter what. And then you can go out and be your best self when you know that somebody's got your back and you have a safety net. Policy Genius is the easy way to shop for life insurance. In two minutes, you can compare quotes, find the best quote for you, and get back to doing stuff you actually want to do, like maybe playing tennis. PolicyGenius.com helps you compare top insurers and gives you the best chance to get the best price on the life insurance or the health insurance or the home insurance or the auto insurance that you need. Delegate what you hate. Do what you love. Go to PolicyGenius.com and get somebody taking care of your back. You were top 70 in singles, but you were top 10 in doubles. Yeah. Right? With Zena Garrison, legendary name in the sport. Uh, you guys won 20 tournaments together? I won 20 um, with separate partners. Okay. I think we may have won seven or eight of those. So a lot of a lot of people love playing doubles. I'm not one of them, but a lot of people do. Um, what is the co- What are some of the keys to being great at doubles? Uh, first of all, we had a great relationship. We were like sisters. So anytime you can have that um, tight knit of a relationship, there's a lot of trust that's out there on the court of you doing what you're supposed to do and I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. Uh, I think we worked well together because I was more of the aggressive player. Okay. And she was more of the not missing player. Okay. So, you know, it was almost, you know, our tandem was she's going to set me up to put it away. You know, we had great communication on the court. She was extremely fast, so I didn't have to really worry about balls getting over my head. I had a pretty good um, overhead, and and I could get off the ground, so I wasn't worried about those. But if they did get over my head, I knew I had called her Speedy Gonzalez, you know, on, on my right, <laughs> and um, and you know we were a force. We were definitely a force. I mean, we were the number three team in the world. Wow. Um, and then we also had our individual rankings, of which I was eight. I think she may have been six or seven she was above me at the time um because you know if you didn't play with there may be a tournament that i didn't play that she played with someone else or vice versa and you can earn points you know regardless um unlike the bryan brothers or the williams sisters who only played with each other until last year with mike when bob was injured injured. and and then he um played with jack a lot of players i notice are not uh, aggressive enough, right? They're not initiating the poach, right? I think it's Brad Gilbert who talks about just poach on the first point. Just, just even if you don't win the point, they're thinking, oh my God, they're going to poach, right? And then that energy might give you a point or might give you, right? I think a lot of players are sort of sitting back waiting for the ball to come to them rather than in doubles, you can really like cut it off and go get it. Yeah, particularly in the recreational level. Um, in the pros, they're they're just, they're dynamite, right? today i mean they're so aggressive they're so assertive they have so many formations that they're 
doing and that's to make sure that they can get involved in the point um but yeah it, it is a you know particularly when you are getting tight you know you have more of a fear of missing that shot yep. as opposed to saying okay i'm going to show you that i'm here or i don't want to get burned down my line and, and that's the mentality so that's that aggressive mentality that allows you to be a little more assertive a little more active if you have a passive mentality um you're more than likely not going to take risk and go for the poach too often. Right. You know, it has to be a planned move with your partner for that passive player to say, okay, I'm going to poach. Whereas the aggressive, more assertive men- mentality of the player or the player that has that mentality will just be all over the place and faking and, and, and trying to intercept. And if they make it great, if they miss it, uh, all right, it was the right move. It was on my racket. I just got to watch the ball better the next time. Or, you know, you're always thinking of how to get better in that. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG thirteen. Wear pink and head to paramountplus.com to try it free. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Um, I want to talk about leadership, but before we get to that, you, because you're the president of the USTA, you have prime seats. We see you at every big match in France and England and whatever. You're like right on the baseline, right in the middle, right? Like three. Yeah, but or- those days are over now. Oh, well, <laughs> but you, 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 you got to see this game from a beautiful front row seat over and over and over. Um, so I want to talk about a couple of things around that. Federer. What is he doing so well that makes him just the dominant figure for so many years? He's uh, he's like, if you look in the dictionary for perfection, it says Roger Federer. I mean, he's done it for so long. He moves so gracefully around the court. He mentally is there. He knows what it takes. 
He strikes the ball with such ease. He can accelerate through the shot when necessary. He can mm-hmm. take the pace off the shot. He has such variety in his game. But he has that air of being Roger Federer, which wins a lot of matches for him right now at the tender age of 37. Mm. Um, I think he'll be 38 this year. So, And he's still winning. He just won in Miami a couple weeks ago. So, I mean, You wonder, where is the next generation of men globally? I mean, like... Oh, they're there. Reg- Roger... Nadal and Djokovic have ruled like two generations, maybe three, right? Like somebody else should have risen up. Two. They have, but they're still in the game. So we had the same questions 20 years ago when you had Pete. No, I'm going to stick with the men. When you had Pete, Andre, Courier, Chang, Mm -hmm. you know, they were like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen when these guys leave? And no one ever gave the next generation a chance. No one ever gave Roger a chance until he beat, beat Pete, Pete right. at Wimbledon. They're like, oh, oh, right, okay. Right. And then nobody gave Rafa, to, you know, the the well, he, long, short. Well, he his first well, he wants, Yeah, but, that was, but uh, that was a key. That was amazing. But they still didn't think that he would go on at any other surface. Right, right. And he, true, proved, right. he proved the world wrong. He's won 11 Rolling Garros. I mean, come on. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. But, you know, Joker, when he came out, he was almost a joke with his mm-hmm. antics and, mm-hmm. you know, couldn't breathe. And, you know, they mm-hmm. felt that oh, psh, this guy's not going to do it. And, and now look where he is, right? So it's the same thing with the next generation when you're looking at um, Dominic Team, you're looking at CC um, Pass, you're looking at Tiafo, you're looking at Zrev, you're looking at Azur Ilias Aliasim. FAA. So, I Love mean, him. you know, I mean, um, Taylor Fritz, Corich. These guys are on these is Sasha's rev. I mean, he's the highest ranked at number three, I think. But he never shows up in the majors. Wait till these other guys aren't there. He's going to beat one of them this who year. Is your, who, which one of this next generation will be the first one to win a major? You know, because we've been seeing Djokovic, Nadal, Federer over and over and over. And yeah. we're all talking about who's going to be the first one from this next generation to win a major. Who's, who's your bet? Oh, that's that's a very good question. I mean, you want to say it's going to be Sasha. He's the veteran. Um, he's only 21, but he's a veteran of that. He's he the is. highest ranked. He's won big tournaments, so he has what it takes. He won the Masters, year in Masters. He's won some other – I mean, he won the ATP World Finals Masters what, mm-hmm. in November two years ago. He's won other master Masters events. So he's been there, mm-hmm. and he should be that next person. Cece Pass, I enjoyed watching um, come up last year. I mean, mm-hmm. kind of caught my eye mm-hmm. uh, second half of the year of 2018. Right. And right. then he started off in January down in Australia, and Super we saw hot. what he did. So he has that opportunity. Um, you know, Courage is young, but I, I like his work ethic. He's just slight in his bill, so I'm not sure if he can continue to take the punch after the punch, punch after punch. You know what I mean? I think it'll be CT Pass, but I love watching Shapovalov play. Oh, Dennis has great personality. He's the yes. lefty. Yes. Um, he's aggressive. He's got that energy. Um, you got Francis Tiafo. I mean, let's see what he can do. Uh, he started off great this year. I think he's feeling the pressure a little bit. You know, anytime you have those first big tournaments and now you have everyone coming after you from the media, from your sponsors, from your friends and family you have to you have to almost put yourself in the bubble i want to challenge you a little bit yeah i love watching tfo i love his heart 
I love his grit. I do not like watching the way he hits the ball. He hits the so ball. So maybe in a very mechanically he has some. Uh, he he's not the smoothest player. <laughs> very diplomatic. Uh, mechanically, um, and he's got. He still has some work to do, but it's working for him. It is. It's working for him, and I and I think you know. Listen, when the Extreme Western Grip first came out it with Rafa and these, was like, there's no way. But look where it is. So um, I think as he continues to develop, he is making some small changes um, but he'll to never his be game. Pretty. He'll never be pretty. He's not going to be the Federer, you know, smooth strokes out there. <laughs> it, just, but, uh, it makes me uncomfortable and I want to root for him. But I'm like, just yeah. everything, the way you take the racquetback for the serve, for the forehand, I'm like, Ugh! but then you're winning and you show so much heart and I love you and I love your story. Yeah, and I think, and listen, I think the ATP, when they did the next-gen event, they started it two or three years ago mm-hmm. with a 23 and under. I mean, that's your next crop of champions, and lo and behold, they are. You know, when they started it, you know, look what Zverev has done. Look what um, Fritz has done. Look what uh, Koric has done. I mean, these these guys are all starting to rise. Team, so you said Zverev, team. You said Zverev will be the next to win a major. Yeah. I'm, I'm, all right, I'm betting on Fast. We will see. Um, Nadal, my favorite. What what do you notice about him from the front row? What don't you notice about him from the front row? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, the, you know, I think the distracting part is his are his rituals, <laughs> right? So that's what that's that's point. that's what you notice. I mean, I know, I know he does the you know sweat, sniff, sweat, yep. Ear, yep. you know, it's yep. just. Ear, in there, nose, yeah, and then like a baseball crotch. I mean, coach. he has everything yeah. in there, right? Yeah. Um, and the the, the, but, the the bottles of water have yeah, he's, to be perfectly he's, he's arranged. OCD, and that's totally. and that's made him who he is. But the determination, the look of determination on his face, every point, every and ball. his effort that goes into every single shot yes. is astonishing, and that's what's made him who he is. He never thinks he's going to lose. No matter what the scoreline is, he's just got that heart and that grit and the eye of the tiger, if you will. Mm-hmm. That's what makes him extremely special. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he's a joy to watch because, you know, I sit there, I go, there's no way he just hit that shot from that part of the court. Right. Or there's no way that he not only got to that shot, but he ripped the winner off of it. Right. So you have to admire that. And there's not a match that he's probably hasn't, that I haven't seen of his, that he hasn't shocked me in some, some way. And, and the same thing goes with Roger, because you look at him and you're knowing, you know that he's a half step slower, yep. but he's adjusted his game to make it, a, to make him a half step quicker yes. in a lot of those situations. Yeah. And so that takes, that takes a lot of work. But it also takes that you have to have the mental capacity to even understand what it means to I, flip that around. With Nadal, I wonder if the OCD ticks, which you know are between the points, between the games, on the side, if it if it congeals to say, I don't have to think about all these other things because this, because the routine out there is so deeply ingrained that there's space in my mind to only focus on. The ball and the the score. I think you hit the nail right on the head, and I think that's what really allows him to stay in his bubble, because everything's the same. Everything's the same. In between points, yeah. and once he gets out there, he knows what patterns. You know, he knows the patterns that he's going to hit. 
Yeah. He knows that if the ball lands here, I'm going to hit this shot. If the, land, if the ball comes over here, I'm going to hit this shot. He has in, That's how he's trained himself. Yeah. And that's who he is internally. So it has worked for him. You, you Just going back to previous, you play the ball. You don't play the score. It doesn't matter if it's love 40, 40 love, whatever, right? You're going to play where the ball lands and play the best shot for you. Yeah, I mean, you, you listen, I, I, you you know the score before the point starts. Absolutely, because if it's break point down, I know I need to get my first serve in. I'm going to go with my best serve. So, yes, you definitely are – the score does play a factor um, into how you approach the next point. Mm-hmm. So, or if I'm up 40 love, I might try some ridiculous serve or some ridiculous shot if I'm serving. But when you're down break point or 30 all, I'm like, hey, I got to get this – return back down the middle of the court, get the point started so I can get into my, you know, let's not do anything crazy out here. And I think too often, you know, when we have game point and break point, we um, players will have a tendency to kind of lose their focus and not really pay attention. This is my only break point. I need to make sure I get the return back in in court. It took me a long time to. I'm sorry, because you assume that you're going to have another chance. Right. But that's the mental part where the score does play a fight. And you'll you'll hear commentators say all the time, you know, let's let's be aggressive here, but let's play it safe. Right. So that means let's hit the ball deep down the middle of the court. Right. Let's not go for the lines. Let's try to handcuff the 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 server to maybe get that second ball that's a short ball that you can actually go for it. You know, or if it's a second serve, you might want to step around and try to rip it and, and, and really get on the offense. And if you miss it, it's okay as long as you did the right thing. I didn't realize until recently 75% of the points are four shots or less. It's really a short point sport. You, we, we practice and we think about the long 10, 20-shot points. They're extremely rare. You have to win the four-shot points or less to win. Well, it's important because everyone's serve is that much bigger, so they're getting a lot more free points. Maybe not on the serve itself, but maybe on the second shot. Right. So they hit a big enough serve that got them a short ball where they can put the second ball away or force the error on the second shot, right? So so that's one, two, three hits. Boom. Maybe four if if you've missed it. So that's that four-shot point that you're talking about. But it's the ones that are 10, 12, 15 where you're really working the, working the point, working the ball around and trying to get into your – set yourself up for your best shot. So if my inside-out forehand is my best shot, I'm trying to work the point that I can finish on that shot. Or yeah. if my backhand down the line is my bread-and-butter shot, I'm trying to set this point up that I can hit the backhand down the line, either for a winner or an error or for that short ball that I can put the next one away. The best man in the world right now, of course, is Novak Djokovic. What do you see of him from up close? Um you see someone that is very he's ritualistic in a very different way than Rafa Nadal Mm -hmm. Um, but this guy there's not a ball that you can get by him so what I look what I look at him is what he does off the court to get Mm -hmm. ready for his matches so Mm -hmm. physically he's like a rubber band yep right he's like Gumby he can put his leg every every which way yep and and not he's not going to get hurt and because find, he's trained his way. And still find balance. Right. He's got the endurance mm-hmm. to last for five hours out there. But even more so is the balance that comes with that flexibility. Mm-hmm. So this guy's doing a full split almost 
and and he's, he's in balance to hit the perfect shot and, and can push off and recover to get like back. He makes the court wider for himself, right? Like he can go to the edges of the doubles alley and beyond and hit great shots, whereas other people, you know, their width will only be you know within a step of the singles line, so he can keep it going longer. That's a very good observation, and and partly partly because of the way that he hits he hits open stance on those sides and. Mm-hmm. And with that, you know, that split, that makes the court bigger for him. But, you know, you look at a guy where uh, where people said he couldn't. And he's shown us that he not only could, but has and continues to. Particularly with his comeback. You mm-hmm, know, he mm-hmm. fell off the face of the earth a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And yet he got it back together. And that's all mental. Physically, he was always there. But it's having that confidence in himself and that belief and you know he goes to the to the ends of the earth with his fitness with his nutrition mm-hmm. with his meditation all the things that work for him and just because it works for him doesn't mean it's going to work for you and i think that's that's an important lesson for a lot of these young players you're never going to be roger rafa novak you know warinka mm. you're not going to be these guys you can only be yourself and find out what makes what works for you. What is the endurance plan that works for you? What is the quick, the fast plan that works for you as far as your fitness? What is the nutrition that works for you? You can learn from them and try to emulate them, but there's always going to be something that you're going to have to tweak for yourself because you may not have the personality that these guys have. And I look at Warinka because I mentioned him. Watching him come back is fascinating. Amazing with with the you know the knee injury that he had, and he's he may not get back to number four in the world when he was one of the big four or Andy Murray for that matter. Right. But in knowing the work ethic and what he's put into, in trying to get back to even have showings and wins is is phenomenal. We'll get back to the interview in one second, but I want to give a shout out to longtime supporter of the show, Saks Underwear, who wants you to check out their Cannonball Swim Shorts, which comes with their patented ballpark pouch. The whole thing with Saks Underwear is it looks great, you put it on, and you forget about it because they take care of you. They keep everything together. You just want underwear that looks good, and you forget about it. It doesn't ride up. It doesn't make you chafe. It doesn't give any weirdness and Saks has got the ballpark pouch that takes care of you. And they have that in the swim shorts and the underwear. That's why it's my favorite underwear. That's why it's all that I wear. They sent me a bunch of pairs, and that's all I've been wearing for months now. It's super comfortable. It's super fun. It's lightweight. It just feels good. They sent me the Cannonball swim shorts, too. They look really good. I've been playing tennis in their two-in-one shorts that are like a short with the underwear inside. It's just fantastic stuff, guys. Just check out Saks Underwear. Shop from anywhere on their site and get $5 off when you use the promo code TORE, T-O-U-R-E, at checkout. So go to SaxUnderwear.com. That's S-A-X-X with two X's, dot com. Use the promo code TORE at checkout and get $5 off a pair of the greatest underwear you'll ever wear. And if you like this podcast, check out my other podcast, Free MFA, where I talk about writing and try to help you become a better writer. Free MFA, available wherever podcasts are streamed.
Serena is perhaps the greatest player in the world. What do you notice about her? Is she just stronger than everybody else? Yeah, I mean, listen, Serena is the greatest player uh, of all time. Um, yeah, is she stronger? Of course she's stronger. But I think right now she's 38, pushing 38, and yeah. as a mom, yeah. and she's not as fast as she used to be. So she has to actually alter her game even more so to make sure that she doesn't have the long rallies that she used to mm-hmm. or that she's not doing a lot of dead sprint um, shots on the court for herself that she's moving her opponent around. But I would say, yeah, and sitting behind in, in her prime, you know, even just three years ago, just admiring how smooth she is with her shots. You know, that fluid service motion. Mm. It's incredible. The the quickness of her racket preparation for her shots. I mean, she I think she gets her racket back quicker than any other player. Yes. Um and and but what she can do in holding that we call it holding the shot. because well, her racket is in position, you know, you think she's gonna go cross court, but at the last second she can redirect it because she's in position. She's in perfect position, and she's in balance. Mm. And, and that's the one strength that she's had over all the players outside of, first, the power, because her serve was you know, the best. And she could get a lot of free points, a lot of aces, a lot of service winners. She could disguise her serve. You didn't really know where it's going. She's one of the few women who use her serve as a weapon. Well... She's she's one that has been the most dominant in using her serve as a weapon. There's a lot of big servers that are out there right now. Um, Pliskova from Czech has a huge serve. You know, I, I, you know, I don't I don't want it to seem uh, sexist at all. There was a big story in the New York Times, it being about two years ago, that talked about why aren't more women using their serve uh, in a more aggressive way, um, and they really came down to uh, social construction that when women are 14 and 16, most of them are not hitting that serve. Like the boys learn how to do it and everybody's bombing, so everybody has to learn that to keep up. And the women are not challenging each other to do that. So they physically could, but they don't. So then you don't develop a game where you have to do that. Well, again, it's about personality. So if I'm not the aggressive personality to where I need a big serve and I have a good serve, you know, I'm, I'm more about picking you apart off the ground right so that's my strength i could have a big serve and i could develop it but it's all about mechanics and it's also about who your coach is at an early age is teaching you the proper mechanics so if you don't have them at a very early age and teaching you really how to use your legs because that's where the power is coming from you can have the racket head acceleration but the power is really from the ground up and and explain exploding upward into the shot Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was at a, a camp the other day or, or a, a junior clinic the other day, and it's not because the coaches aren't teaching it. Some players just aren't able to do that, and that's where the athletes come in play. Mm. Your athletes know how to use their legs. They know how to accelerate up. They know how to jump. That's where the power comes in from the serve. If you most of our Most of our tennis players that are taught athletes – may not understand that concept early enough. They get it later later, and they can develop it, but it's not who they've been from that very tender age mm. of, of understanding the importance of it. Were you at the uh, Serena Osaka U.S. Open final? You know I was at the 
Serena Osaka <laughs> US Open I saw final. you there. Um, do you? This is a difficult question for you. I imagine you probably don't want to answer this, but do you think the the chair umpire uh, called that match fairly? The chair umpire called the match by the rule. So for him, he gave the warning. She broke a racket. It was a point. She had an outburst that was uh, negative towards him, and it ended up being a game. That's not really where the argument comes in for Serena. The argument was for her that she felt that she wasn't being coached and that right, it began she shouldn't with, have gotten it began she with shouldn't the, have gotten a warning. Right. So do you think that had, initial had, call was correct? I think it was a a bold move by any chair umpire in the finals of a Grand Slam when coaches are coaching all the time. So. You know, and I, I said it then and I'll say it now. I, I, I feel that it should have been a soft warning. If he, in fact, actually saw it, he should have told both players, hey, I, I'm seeing some activity in your boxes from your coaches or others. You know, they, need to, they need to settle down or I'm going to have to give you a warning. Right. So, and, and if he started there, then he wouldn't have had a fight with Serena. That, well, it would have never week. escalated to what it was right. because would she have broken a racket? She still would have broken the racket after losing the first set. Sure. Because that, that's Perhaps. just... No, she still would have broken the racket. This okay. is Serena. Okay. But that would have been a warning. Right, right, right. Then you're at one right? rather than a two. And then right. the outburst for whatever else would have been uh, would have been a point. But it would have never gotten to that because her whole philosophy, her whole thought process was going back to, well, I should have never gotten a warning. Right. You're calling me a cheat. Right. So that, that was that. But Serena's... Serena and any player is responsible for their actions on the court and how they are engaging and communicating with with the like chair umpire. There's there's a, a knowledge within the community of who's getting a little too much coaching and who's not. Like people kind of know if you're in 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 the game, right? And Serena, to my knowledge, does not have that reputation. There are others, right? I mean, Patrick, as soon as they questioned him. He was like, "Well, Rafa and Tony talk the whole match, right?" And everybody, yeah. Knows but he that. also said, "Listen, I, yeah, I coach, I coach, and so does everybody else." But if you are a fan, now you know we're sitting in the box and we're all thinking things, and you may be throwing signals out—not signals, but you're like, "Oh my God, if you can only move forward or do this or do that," you yourself aren't really coaching. Right. You may be talking to the person next to you. If and you're and you're gesturing or or what have you, but at the end of the day, um, you know, coaching is is something that the USTA in particular believes in, and would love to implement it. And just we've done uh, trials at the last two U.S. Opens, right? Um, in qualifying and doubles right. and wheelchair and, and other uh, other categories, but not in the main draw. Right. And it's happening anyways. You like it. Yeah. You want to see, be open, Why coach. not? They're coaching anyways. They're coaching anyways. So why distract the chair umpire? Without, but but, but are, are I think it can be organized. Signals? But like I think it can be organized. Well, they're yelling on the court. They're sending signals. Of course they are. I mean, you see come coaches on, being like, right, come you on. Watch it. Like, come on. It's, it's, that's nothing. Forehand, backhand. Come on, move in. Get up. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of signals that I mean, are. Is, it, is that it really are, detrimental if your coach is saying hit more to her backhand? Like that's obvious that you should. No, hit I'm more saying to it's backhand. not. Right, right. That's it's what I'm saying. It should be. It should just, be allowed. Just let it go. Because at the end of the day, I still have as a player I have to execute it. it. Yeah. 
You can tell me to go cross court with my forehand all day long, but if I'm late, I got to do it. I can't hit a cross court. Isn't it better for the sport as a television sport to have the coach in the break tell, hey, do more of this and less of that? It, that's that makes it a better broadcast. Yeah. So you know, listen, it's it's twofold because I I'm a traditionalist in my own way mm-hmm. um, with the sport, and I think when we first started talking about coaching a few years back, I was like, as a player, I'm like dude, I, I, I want to do this on my own. Right. But then I started to think about it. I go, I still am doing it on my own because I have to go out there and make the shot. I've got to run down the ball. I've got to execute and put it in. Um, but from a from a viewer's perspective, I mean, the WTA has been, they've had coaching for, I think, 10 years now um, on their tour. The men on the ATP World Tour, they don't have that. But, yeah, for you as a viewer at home to be able to listen and go, wow, that's exactly what I was thinking, or to say, oh, I was so wrong and what I thought she should be doing. Um, it's a learning tool, and I think it's engaging our audiences at home. And, you know, I think it, I think it could take a lot of pressure away yeah. from not just the player, but from the chair, from the officials. You know, it gives the, it gives the commentator something more to talk about yeah. because we as commentators sit there and we say what we think should be happening. Yep. And then it's either confirmed by that coach to hear on the court, or you could say, wow, I totally was looking at something different, but he or she knows his or her player, you know, way better than, than I am sitting here in the booth. Is there another significant change that you would like to see to the game? You're in favor of coaching. Is there something else that you want to see? No, I think I think you know there's baby steps as to what we're doing to try to make the sport uh, more exciting. You know, we put in the serve clock mm-hmm. last year in 2018. Mm-hmm. All the slams implemented that, mm-hmm. um, and it's actually sped up play. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, because mm-hmm. you realize that you don't really know how much time you have. I know I have 25 seconds, but when I'm not really started. paying attention. So once I see the clock, I'm like, oh, okay, and you actually get to the line a lot quicker. Because you can't. Right. You don't need to use all of that time. Right. But um, I think that's I think that's a great addition. I think p- particularly on the professional side, with the one five one implementation, meaning once you go on the once a coin toss, you have one minute to start your warm up. You have five minute warm up, and then you have one minute to start the match. Because a lot of players will sit there, change their shoes, and go to the bathroom and do all kinds of stuff once they've walked on the court for the warm-up. And um, from a viewer's perspective at home, particularly for television, you know, they're ready to start the match, but then they've got two or three extra minutes to kill before, you know, you want you, you turn on the TV because you want to watch the match. Right. You don't want to watch all this other stuff that's going on. Right. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of steps that are – being taken to address a lot of those little things, but I think the uh, the coaching would be interesting to see if it if it ever goes no, in the play. I'm not sure that it, it 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 has or will fundamentally change what is happening out there. No, because you're not going to break up the rhythm and the tempo of the player either. Right. So, like I said, at the open we had them on the outside court. So, if I'm sitting, you know, the player could walk over to right. the fence line where the coach was standing and you could have a chat and and that was it but it's your choice to say okay i'm gonna go over here versus sitting my tired behind down and recuperating for the next for the next game right so it'd be very interesting to see how often it's used 
But also, I mean, if we're on the same side of the court, I can encourage you, which is what we're doing now, yeah. but not feel like as a coach, oh, I don't want the umpire to hear me say, okay, that's it, great shot, way to move forward. Right. Oh, warning, coaching, right? Right. right. You're not going to have – what they can't do is scream across to the other side of the court. That's just right. Right? So yeah. – and no coach would ever do that anyways. Right. That's just not something that – But you're staring we're still, at we're still, your we're box st- every, every point. Between every point, there's just they just stare at the box. But, but, but it's not for coaching. It's right. really it's for, for encouragement. It's for encouragement. Yeah. I mean, I'm not looking for you to tell me what to do. I'm looking for a nod to say, okay, Come that's on, it. Let's going. go. Yeah. You know, all right, no worries. Let's not, or that's it. Let's keep it going. Yeah. I'm not looking there for you to tell me. I'm like, dude, I'm the one that's out here. I'm not, I, yeah. you can sit there on the sideline, but I'm, you're not out here receiving this ball deep I, in the court. I, I can't force this ball across court. Exactly. I may not get a chance to attack his backhand right, on exactly. this point if they hit the ball. If we're playing on the forehand angle, but what, but that's the know? fun part, and that's the part that if if it comes into play, listen, rules are meant to be changed, right? Right. So if it changes and it doesn't really accomplish what they want it to do, or if it becomes pretty absurd, they can take we'll it. They it can change it back. You've been so great at answering the tricky questions that I didn't think you would want to answer. So I'm going to keep going with that. There's no. There's nothing tricky. What's wrong with Nick Kyrgios? <laughs> I love Nick. One of the most talented people in the world. He could be top three. He could be top two. And yet, I don't think anyone has that answer. Uh, he is probably the most talented player out there. I love watching him play. When he's on, you love watching him play. Yeah, and when, he's when he's on. Dogging it, but I mean, like, only, only he knows what's going on inside his head. Yeah. Only he knows that. So only he can correct it if it's correctable. I mean, we both love Nadal for bringing it every point. Nick will show up for some points, and other points he's clearly just dogging it. And he may win the point when he's dogging but it. That's, he's so good. But but, but that's, a, that's part of our human perception also, right? As to we, he may look like he's not trying on certain shots, particularly right. if he hits a great shot. Right. That's, that's part of his talent. Mm. He doesn't have to have that eye of the tiger and that you know to show that i'm in this Mm, that's for us that's not for him right right so it's the same thing that when you see players that get upset on the court a lot of that is showing off to their parent or their coach to show oh i'm really trying Mm. i'm not just out here losing just to be losing so some of those bang in the rack is an outburst or to sh- or really to show your team your team that I care. Yeah. Well, he doesn't have just because he doesn't show the grit that we expect or what we've become accustomed to doesn't mean that he doesn't care. Now, most of the times when we think that he doesn't, he'll come off the court and say, "I don't I, care." I didn't care. Which is fine because that's but, not fine to me. No, it's fine because he's being honest. He's being authentic, but so, I wish right? he cared. He he's being honest. He reminds me a lot of Daryl Strawberry, right? There was a great New York Times magazine story about him like 10, 15 years ago where he talked about everybody told me I could be the best of all time. And to him, it was better to to try fully to become the best of all time and fail would be painful, so don't try, and then I don't have to get that pain. And I feel like Nick is dealing with some of the same stuff. Yeah, he probably is. I think every player has dealt with that at some point. you know. But at the end of the day, he's a professional. 
he has a duty to go out and play 100%. He owes it to himself first. He owes it to his coach and his team and whoever else, his family. But he also owes it to the fan that came to watch him play or to watch a great match. And and that's the professional side that I just don't think he's fully grasped. And, you know, for a long time, he didn't have a coach. So he doesn't have the – the only people that surrounded him were those that would tell him what he wanted to hear. Mm. And I don't think he's really gotten the tough love from whoever that might be to really snap him into it, to say, dude, if you're going to be out here, if this is what you're going to do, it's a short window. Right. Give it your all. You got five, six, seven more years, maybe, if you're healthy. Yeah. Why not go for it and see just how far you can go? And if you never get there, that's okay. See, he's classic in that when he's playing top three, top four, he shows up. Oh, yeah. Outside of that, he's like, eh, I don't, but you got to be able to crush the guys who are 20, 30, 40 to stay four, five, six. But that's part of pressure. And not everybody can handle pressure the same. That's, you look at, I take it back to junior tennis. You can be number one in 12 and unders, but you want to go and play 16. Because I don't want to play, you know, it's easier for me to say, oh, I lost, but I lost to a 16-year-old. three years older than me. You know? Yeah. As opposed to saying, oh, I just lost to the number two or number five player in my age bracket. Shoot, I need to work harder. So it's the same thing for the pros. They know that, you, you know, I rose to every occasion when I played. I wanted to play a top seed. Because I wanted to that's, prove myself. Yes, that's easier. And to see, you know, and it's like, hey, if I win, awesome. If I lose, I just she went up against it. the best in the world, yeah. right? Versus someone that's 50, 60 with me. Or below you. Or below me. That's where the pressure comes from because I'm supposed to win these matches. Mm-hmm. And um, But Kyrgios is, is, is a freak of nature um, on so many levels as a, as a player and his athleticism. And just the way that he can dissect the court and carve out shots. Mm-hmm. Um, if he can ever get it together, then he's one of those mm-hmm. names that we didn't mention earlier. Who could? Who could carry the sport. Who could? Who, who could? could. But um, I'm you, not sure if he can. How did you deal with pressure when you're out there? Third set tiebreaker, you know, down match point, whatever, up match point. Like, how did well, you Well, that's deal part with of the training. That's, what you do. that's why you practice. Yeah. You put yourself in those scenarios and practice all the time. But it's not the same. There's it's no- not, but it becomes a routine. Mm-hmm. It, comes, it comes to, okay, this is what I need to do. I need to make the return. I need to... Set up the points so I can finish, you know, the at the net. heart's beating a little more. The palms are a little sweaty. Like, what do but you But again, it's part of training. Yeah, that's, why, that's why you practice the hours that you put in. That's why you run the miles that you do. That's why you do this. So, so it's So automatic? that when you're, in those, when you're in those moments, you don't doubt yourself. You're believing in yourself. Okay, I know I'm fit. If I've got to run down every shot, I know I can do that. I know I can hit this shot from this point in the court. I know I can withstand the power of the serve. So you have to put yourself in all those scenarios and situations. It's like golf. You put a ball in every part of the, of the green, right, for, for that moment that when I'm in this situation, oh, I've hit this putt a, g- a gazillion times. I've hit this chip a gazillion times. I know I have. The, the touch and the power or the distance to do that. It's the same thing. I've kind of learned over time from reading and studying to try to quiet the mind and try to have 
a paucity of words. They're just a few things that you say. You want to have a conversation with yourself, especially in a pressure moment. Is that how you approached it? Pretty much. I had, I had, um, I had like maybe five words that I used to tape on the inside of my racket. Okay. Like inside the throat. What were they? So in those, it it could have been anything of watch the ball, um, stay low, you know, focus, or I don't know. I don't even remember. Technical. Technical stuff. Um, Breathe. It could be any of those, but at least I would look in them and I could remind myself in those moments as to, okay, breathe. That's important Mm -hmm. because that's going to get my heart rate down. Mm -hmm. That's Mm going to allow me to think more clearly. Mm -hmm. Okay, now focus. I need to see the ball right off the racket so that I can react. You know, I've got to make sure I stay down on my shot. I don't want to raise up because that's what's going to force the error. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, I don't know what the other two words were. The president of the USTA is definitely thinking a lot about American tennis. Right now, American women's tennis is at a very high level. There's a lot of really interesting and good players coming up. What are we as a nation doing so much better than every other country in developing women players? I think I think we're developing men and women players, but we've we're had much more we've side. had much more success on the women's side. Um, Martin Blackman is our general manager of player development, and, great player. and he has a great philosophy that he and his coaches um, believe in. And the work ethic that they have, um, our wonderful new facility at the USTA National Campus in Orlando at Lake Nona, um, gives them a base where they can really uh, focus on providing the best opportunities for our players, whether it's um, courts on different surfaces, whether it's a fitness fitness facility, whether it's the mental toughness that's provided, whether it's audiovisual that they have access to. Uh, nutrition that's available we're providing those opportunities for those players to be the best that they can be Um, we've had a a very long tradition of our female champions coming up and 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 that's great Um, the two greatest players did not come through the USTA's uh, funnel Venus and Serena yeah no they did not but they're American of course but but they did receive things from the USTA over time, whether it's, and they still do. If Serena needs um, analytics, we're getting the analytics to her. So that kind of, you don't have to be the primary person. We're about American tennis and right. about American players and right. whatever you need is that American player. Um, it's being, it's being provided. And, and so that, I think that's a plus, whether it's Venus, Serena, um, Sloan, Madison, Coco, so you know, many. Danielle, uh, Sonia. I mean, we've got a plethora of players. You know, we have Fed Cup coming up this weekend in San Antonio. We expect to and, win. And uh, we need to win. <laughs> yes, we expect to win, but we need to win. Now, the men's, um, the men's side is not as dominant as the women's side. The correct. men's side is not as strong as from the 60s to the late 90s, early 2000s. There were always several men, American men at the top. What happened in that period from mid-90s to now to the world? The world got bigger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You had more athletes that were behind the Iron Curtain that had an opportunity to come out and show their talents, that they didn't have that opportunity pre-mid-90s, right? We're we're competing with Europe. Europe always had good players. Europe just But Europe got bigger. Uh Uh-huh. 
the entire Russian bloc and the Eastern bloc of players that weren't really capable of coming out. They're hungrier. You talk about a, a Novak Djokovic that mm-hmm. came from a war-torn country and played inside of a swimming pool mm-hmm. along with Anna Ivanovic. Mm-hmm. We don't have that that uh, need in America, right? So I say I look at I I look at the U.S. as being land of excess at times mm-hmm. because we have too many opportunities. And when you look at our true athletes on, of, from a male perspective, there are way too many other opportunities as opposed to going into tennis. So we're not necessarily getting the, the best. best athletes right, right. coming into our sport. Definitely. Whereas I feel that the best athletes from some of these other countries are in tennis and a lot outside of, best, of soccer. And, and and a lot of the best women, female athletes are, are going in tennis. into tennis. Exactly. Because not, there's because there's opportunities. Right. right? But it's, not it's, on the men's side. Not on the men's side. But I do think that the the athletes that we do have in our sport right now are, are making strides. Um, they're doing well. You know we look at um, Taylor Fritz just beat Sch- Schwartzman on Diego Red Clay and Monte Carlo yesterday. Big and, victory for him. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. Taylor's from California on hard courts. And he's beaten down Diego Schwartzman, who was top 10 in the world a year ago. Yeah. Um, yeah quarterfinalist yeah. at Roland Garros. And at, Taylor like, just beat him. So I look at like it's Isner coming. Well, like, John, like, John's done a great job for, for, for his height, for his game. He's 32. Three now. I don't know what he is. He's, he's in his thirties. So one dimensional. It disappoints but it, me. But he, but he used his talent to the best that he could. He's six yeah. ten. Yeah. He's not going to be much more than. He's not going to be Djokovic moving around the court. No. But for a big man, John moves extremely well, and you got to give him credit for that. He, he, so, he would have benefited being ten to twenty years younger in an era when you served and volleyed, because nobody correct, can do that. Now. Correct. And so, so if you look at. You know, if you go back five years and you look at John, Sam, Sam Steve, yeah, Stevie, and um, maybe Ryan Harrison. You know, those were like the top four, four guys. I'm sure I'm missing someone in those four, but they're all older now, and their games aren't. They don't have the agility as the other players have. If you look at their games, they don't. They're not as agile. Stevie is, but Stevie unfortunately had, you know, a, a setback with his father passing away a couple of years ago, and he hasn't fully recovered from that. Um, he was the greatest college player of all time, Stevie Johnson, and it was it was converting to to his professional career. I mean, he's got a few titles under his belt, um, but it's not, you know, he's not a he's not Rafa. Do you miss he's not Roger? Volley? Do you miss serving volley? It's coming back, dude. Have you it not is, seen it? It, it is. It, it is, is. It is coming back. A little bit. It is. It is creeping back it, in. It will never be the dominant. I mean, the game is too fast for it to be. Right. But you know, I, I was asked this question in Rochester at Midtown um, just the other day about the serving and volleying. The coaches of today can't volley. So how can <laughs> they teach you how to volley? How can they teach you the mindset of what a serve and volleyer is? Yeah. They're not teaching our young kids how to serve and volley. I, I they that. weren't taught how to serve and volley. Right. So we're we're it's extinct almost here in the U.S. in particular. Yep. Um, and it's sad. It's sad. The kids that are doing it on their own is because they're having fun doing it. It is. They fun. have the mindset to do it. Yeah. 
and they've developed the skill sets that are needed to actually be. Taylor Fritz is one of those. He can serve and volley. Yeah. But he's not going to do it on every point because the game is the game is too. I miss the variety. The, the, that this guy's coming in all the time. This guy stays back. This guy comes in sometimes. Yeah, but the game is too fast. The balls yeah. are moving too fast. Equipment is moving. I mean, if Pete, if Pete was in today's Sampras game, Pete to Sampras stay, have to stay back. He would have to work his way to the point. I mean, the, to the, the net. But the the development of the courts are are slower. Yeah. Right, so you get longer points, but the strings and the rackets are better, so Correct. the ball's moving faster, and there's more spin on it, and there's and... more strength. Yes, but you know, there's still there's nothing scarier than uh, when they serve out wide, and then they're coming in, and you're like, where the hell am I, I going to hit the ball? I agree, I agree. Listen, I was a serving volley or chip and charger, so I get it, but it's uh, it's. I think everything is cyclical as well. So when I talk about cyclical, I think it's our time for for our guys to Come to back. start to to make that circle back to the top. You know, having John in there at the top ten for the last year, at least we have someone in the top ten, and he worked hard for it. I mean, and you know, who who would have thought that he would have won Miami last year, or or you know, one of the big tournaments at the end of the year? You're one of the few players in any sport who were able to have a nice career and then move into leadership in your sport. What did you do as a person to set yourself up for that? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been very fortunate. I, I think it was more about being inquisitive on the business side of the sport. Like I said, when I was on the WTA tour, I was on the WTA player right. association board, and then I moved to be a member of the WTA tour board where we sat on the board with the tournaments and the ITF and, and uh, other leaders of the game. Um, and, and I, cause I knew it wasn't just about hitting tennis balls. Um, you know, I, I got into commentating. I started commentating with tennis channel in 2003. And so you see it from a different perspective and you start to understand yet another business side of the sport. So when I, when I joined the USCA board, um, and I understood, you know, I didn't know that the USDA did anything other than running tournaments. As a professional player, I knew I played USDA tournaments as a junior. I knew I had a USDA ranking. I knew I played on the USDA travel team. And I knew that there was a US Open. But who knew that they actually really supported grassroots tennis and was developing players or developing programs throughout the country. So that intrigued me when I got on the board to want to learn more and see how I could really make a difference because everything that I've done in my life from even being on the tour and the committees that I was on, I wanted to be on there because I thought I could make a difference. Mm -hmm. So that's my roots as, as from my parents mm -hmm. and how I was raised. Um, but I, I, I often and always believe that, you know, if I'm going to get involved in something, it's because I want to make a difference, not to just be sitting there. But you you got to conduct yourself in just the right way. Because I imagine leadership of any sport looks at the players as, oh, my God, you're so amazing. But also, you're a physical genius. You're not as smart as us who run things up here. And they may not even be conscious of these sort of biases. So when a player comes in and says, hey, I'd like to be part of leadership, there may be a barrier of like, but you're a player, and you yeah. have to conduct yourself in a certain way to let people know, like, no, 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 I am, I am, leader, humbly, I am leadership material. Well, I think it's part of confidence. 
it's part of confidence. It's how you carry yourself. It's how you communicate. Mm-hmm. It's it's what questions are you asking. So you can determine at a you can you can see leadership skills in a person at a very young age based on how they conduct themselves. Mm-hmm. And and that's are they a good listener? Mm-hmm. Are they really responding to the questions? And are they asking good questions? And I think I've done that my entire life. So as I progressed up through the other channels, coming into the USTA and and understanding the business side of the USTA as to what we do and promoting and developing the growth of tennis in the US, not just to create a professional tennis player, but to literally get as many rackets in hands of people at all ages to enjoy a sport for a lifetime, then I felt that that was something that I could be impactful in doing and carrying that message out. And and so one thing led to the next. And, and so when I was in that position, you know, I had the opportunity to say, I want to grow. Here, here's a demographic that we're lacking in in our numbers, and that's the Hispanics. It's the fastest growing demographic in America. In America. Mm-hmm. And if we don't get because of, because of people who live here, not because of people correct, coming because here. of people that are that are living here, and 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 it's also a demographic of them being. Of of their spending capability of one point three trillion dollars, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, I think a problem that people the perception is is that if you're black or brown skin, you're poor and you don't have money and that you're underprivileged and underserved, and not and just overlooking those of us in this room that are professionals mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that are making money mm-hmm. that have the ability to spend in our sport, and and so in looking at that, it was about embracing a culture that our sport just really hadn't embraced because they were, you know, they gravitated more to um, soccer or baseball because that's what their country, maybe their grandparents, that was a sport that they grew up playing or maybe their parents because they could be first generation here. Mm -hmm. And so that's the sport that they learned early and they're watching on television and they're getting all excited with the jerseys and going crazy and having just a blast. Well, I want them to feel the same way about tennis. The social capital that you're talking about is so important that in certain families, certain communities, you play baseball, your parents and everybody around you is very impressed, right? You play football in the South, in the West, everybody's very impressed. There's only pockets of places. I got a lot of attention from my parents being good at tennis, so that motivated my sister and I to play and practice more. Right. But in so many black and brown communities, you don't get a quarter for for playing tennis well nobody cares you know unless you get to a very high level so that doesn't motivate people to try right and so it was my goal to make sure that we were able to introduce the sport to as many communities as possible to show that it is fun you know having 10 and under tennis in particular with the short nets um the short courts the low nets you know kids can go out in the driveway and on the street and feel like they're actually playing tennis almost immediately as opposed to hitting rockets all over the place with a yellow ball and a racket that's too big for them, right? So let's get them engaged. Let's make sure we get even more programs in schools and after-school programs in these communities so that we can invite them to let them know that not only is it for kids, it's for families. Was there a sort of politicking that you had to do within the organization when – you see the presidency is is possible for you and you're sort of at a high level but you're not at the the top level and like is there a way you go about it like sort of letting people know like hey I'd like to be president I could be good at that 
No, I think over, you know, part of our process is uh, when it's time for a new board and you're going through the interview process, um, your your claim of wanting to be president is wanting to be the first vice president because that's the training path. Mm-hmm. So it was in that moment, you know, two years prior that when I went into the room to say, you know, I want to be the first vice president because I ultimately want to be the president. You don't want to be the first vice president if you have no intention of of carrying that out. Um, and it was it was a time in you know for me where I really felt that I had done my dues um, on the board for many years. I'd learned a lot. I'd been a lot of a, been a part of several committees of our business committees, and um, and it was a time for me to say you know if not now when and if not me who when you're looking at diversity. And, and so that was, you know, that was more of, of my pitch at that time because... But your pitch is not just diversity. It's also, I am committed, I am intelligent. Not I only am... that, it was about me having been at every level of the sport that right. we're promoting. Right. So I had all these things that were working for me. So listen, I came up in junior tennis. I played high school tennis. I played collegiate tennis. I played professional tennis. I've been a national coach. I've commentated. You know, I run an NJTL program. All the things that we have our hands in, I've had the experience and I have relationships with so many people that I can reach and communicate with. And this is the time to make this happen so that we can elevate ourselves and, and stop talking and actually walk what we're talking. Yes. And, um, and, and so I was fortunate enough to, to get the appointment and, and to do it twice. And and um, I think I had some great um, strides in, in, in growing tennis. Um, yeah. There's a lot of other factors that are there. I mean, growing tennis, you know, if you're looking at the raw numbers, no. We declined or we were flat, but so are all the other sports. Mm-hmm. But if you look at all the other sports, we're number one because we didn't – it's almost like we grew – because we didn't decline as much as the other sports. Mm. And in terms of participation. Participation. Do you think and about the, how the tennis in the 80s and 90s had much greater levels of participation in America versus now? Well, of course, because you? You, didn't have, you didn't have all the other opportunities that are out there. Kids were playing video games. Esports is the fastest growing sport out there, sitting on their asses with a digital thing in their in in their hand. And all the X games as well. It's a yes, different Absolutely. So, so you, you look at that land of excess there's so much more for our kids to be engaged and involved with Mm. and so tennis is not the first thing that comes on a lot of our kids minds we need our parents to introduce it to them but it's we also have to do our part in making sure that we're promoting and have promotional materials out there so that if a kid sees something they're like wow what's that and that's why we're in the schools we're in thousands of schools around the country because where are all the kids, where do they start? They start in school. Yeah. So if they can be introduced to the sport in a school program, then they can say, oh, wow, this is really cool, or this is really fun. How do I play more? And then there are the programs in their neighborhoods that they can go and play, or clubs nearby that have programming for them. And that's how we have to continue to, to grow our sport um, and making sure that we're in the right communities with with a pathway, not just having a program here and then you can't get, you know, not just being in school here, but there's no club or park that's doing a, a program, you know, 
more than 50 miles away, then that's not going to work. You're working on a book about leadership. Yeah. What are some of the keys to being an effective leader, especially when you're a black woman, where most of the people you're interacting with are white men? Yeah, so it's it's called Own the Room, and -hmm. it'll be published uh, September of 2020. And it's really more about my personality and, and what my experiences have been. Um, there really hasn't been a room that I've ever walked in that I didn't feel like I belonged or that I didn't feel like, hello, I'm here. Um, and then it's up to me to say I can be as engaged as I want or, or not in these different environments, particularly being a black woman and, and being in a lot of rooms that are majority white males. Um, but I never walked into a room and said, oh, gosh, here we go. Or <laughs> that, what am I going to talk about? I'm one that just dives right in and, and, and make myself known. But that's part of confidence. That's also a part of being prepared. You have to know what room you're going into, mm-hmm. who the who your audience is, mm. and to say, hey, do I have anything in common with them? If I don't, I need to do a little more research to figure it out or to, to at least be able to strike up a conversation to where we're going down the same path. Um, so that's called that's a preparation part of it. Confidence. What am uh, making sure that I have something fruitful to talk to or talk with somebody important about? Yes, and it, absolutely. And um, being a good listener, because a lot of people like you know if you're if you have an assertive personality, you might go in and try to start a conversation, but not knowing anything about these people, and you're going to find yourself going down a rabbit hole. Mm. As opposed to going in and listening, listening to conversation by a couple different groups and then realizing that, oh, I have something in common with this person. Oh, you went to Northwestern. I went to Northwestern. Hey, Damn. you know, and then you start Here we go. start there. Yeah. And they may be a neurosurgeon and I have no knowledge of that, but we can talk about this, which will lead to maybe something on a, a lower you know, a different level than the, being a neurosurgeon or scientist of, that I'm like, ah, you can have that feel. You can. Um, when you were traveling the world as a player, did you have moments of like straight up racism that somebody said or did something to you or around you or behind your back that was like, damn, can I live? Yeah, you know, I'm, I, I have to say I didn't. I was very fortunate. I was very fortunate. And maybe it's because of the personality that I had or the way I carried myself. I don't know. Um, you know, I would say, you know, there's a couple times where you come off the court dripping wet and I was a sweater. I've got my racket bags, whatever, and I'm trying to walk through the the area that goes to the locker rooms and they're asking for a badge and I'm going, really? When my, opponent, when my opponent just came off and you didn't say anything. So, but I had that attitude again. I'm not, I'm not stopping. I'm, I'm going to keep going. I'm like, come on, seriously? So... And that's part of that own the room type of thing for me. You're not you're not gonna stop me and try to embarrass me. You're only gonna embarrass yourself. I'm gonna stop you from embarrassing yourself in this moment. Okay. I'm gonna keep going. No, I don't have my batch. Okay. Ask my opponent that you're not stopping who's right behind me or the or just walked in front of me. The that type of thing. Um, I will say that if uh those that remember the player Camille Benjamin um, who's from Bakersfield, California, who is about six feet, very lean, wore glasses, um, kind of a short curly afro, and very dark skin, 
total opposite from me being five foot five, light skin, didn't wear glasses, whatever, to ask to sign or autograph for a picture and to be chased down because Camille, Camille, sign this. Yeah, then to and to and, and I'm saying that's not me. You, you gotta be kidding. And no, this is you. And no, it's not me. So it was a moment of frustration, but then it was a moment that I had to just laugh because I'm I literally had to stop and say, dude. Look at the picture and look at me <laughs> holding the picture up to my face. Because I'm like, and, and he finally goes, oh, oh, sorry. I'm like, seriously? You're not seeing me. So it's, you know, it's, yeah. And that's, so those are the things that you, that I may have encountered, but Nothing not major. really any overt racism of being called any names or things. Or just things getting like, any yeah. sort of. Yeah. But, you know, it's. Well, it's a junior. It's, yeah, as a junior, I was—I think I was protected. I think my dad kind of took the brunt of a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, again, I had no... I wasn't... Yeah, I was raised on the west side of Chicago in a black community. But my parents' colleagues, they were teachers. We always went to other people's homes and playing with... It wasn't... It didn't mean anything to me. I wasn't raised to know that I wasn't supposed to be something or somebody right i was raised very differently so even when i got into the sport when i picked up a racket i was in an all-black program and you know i grew up with i i didn't know that white people actually played our sport because i was (laughs) because i was i was with black people so then when i started playing tournaments i quickly became friends with with them and it was in it because i was good so i think i had that air of confidence once i even started to integrate into into those uh, suburban area tournaments, et cetera. And if I had any kind of, uh, if there were any kind of hiccups, I think my dad, you know, Hands took it and it. and I never, ever experienced it. You're in the Black Tennis Hall of Fame. Yeah. The first person, of course, inducted ever into Black Tennis Hall of Fame is Arthur Ashe. Yes, of um, Did you know Arthur? I did know What him. was he like? Uh, you know, I didn't have a personal relationship. We knew of each other. We respected each other. But he always uh, was kind and um, always asked the right questions. You know, I met him, I think, my first time when I was probably 11 or 12. Um, Again, when I was uh, collegiate player of the year, he was always there for the awards at the U.S. Open. That was maybe in 86 or 87. And then, of course, I turned pro and um, you know, he called a couple matches that I had. So, but he was, uh, That's exciting. you know, he was, he was respectful. Um, he respected me. He, he applauded my efforts. Um, he was always about education. So it was, you know, it's like, Hey, uh, you know, I, I know you, I know you only went to school for two years, but don't forget. Yeah. yeah I got you. I got you, bro. Got you. Um, I didn't really say it like that, but, um, <laughs> But I admire. He was someone that I admired and yeah. and respected. Um, when I when I started playing tennis in '75, the program had us watching the finals of Wimbledon with he and Jimmy, Jimmy on like a 12 inch black and white TV. And I'm like, dude, you can play tennis on TV? <laughs> I had no idea what Wimbledon was. I had no idea who he was. But it was the summer I started playing. So that probably also kind of motivated me to really want to get more involved in the sport. Yeah. Never to think that I was going to play, you know, did I ever know I was going to play at Wimbledon? Yes. 
did I say it in 1975? I don't think so. My parents may beg to differ because I don't really remember. I might have said, oh, my gosh, I'm going to play there someday. Um, but I didn't get into the sport to be a professional player. I got into it because I love to compete. Yeah. I just love to compete. Yeah. And it was something that I could – I was good at competing. I can beat you. Yeah. I didn't mm-hmm. care were how old you were. In, were you number one in your divisions as a junior? Locally. Um, yeah, on CDTA, Chicago District Tennis Association. But you played and, USTA. What is the section? That uh, Illinois, it, Illinois. it was called the Western Section then, which is now Midwest. Okay. So it was the and Midwest it, Section. And I don't think I was Illinois. It's no, a, it's uh, it's Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, and um, I think Indiana. Yeah, Indiana. And did you have to play tournaments in four states? Yeah, I play. I played all around. So my dad, we would drive to. That's huge. We would I drive grew up on weekends. Playing in New England. Yeah. And, right. All the states were in Nelta yeah. and one. Yeah. But and you had to play in I think at least four states, which isn't that bad, right? New Hampshire is not that far from as, but like Michigan, Indiana. I mean, this is a gigantic. These are big states. It's a big. Yeah, difference. but. But from where I was in Chicago, many of our drives were not over two, two and a half hours because we okay. were very centrally located. It was kind of a belt of where the the, the tournaments of my level were. So were you number one in the West? Um, I don't think I ever became number one, but I was top four okay. in, the, in, in that section. 16s, 18s? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, okay. I think I won. I might have been number one in 16s or 18s. I, won, I remember winning the – it was called the closed – Championships. You, how how high did you get nationals? Uh, probably four or five. Wow. Yeah, wow. probably four or five. I mean, I came up with a great group of of players, and Who it was wasn't the really one until in your generation when you were coming up. There were several. Um, you know, I, I came up with um, Stephanie Rahey, uh-huh. who's no longer playing, but she's a physical therapist or a th- doctor right now. Um, she was like, you just couldn't beat her. She was a backboard. Um, Beverly Bowles was a little older. Patty Finnick was a little older. Um, Jennifer Fuchs from New England or from New York. She was an unbelievable player. Melissa Brown, who's from New York, was an unbelievable player. Um, Grace Kim, who I think is from New York, was an un- unbelievable player. Now that I think about it, they're all from New York. The last thing, you know, when you're when you're in a tennis community or whatever you talk about tennis all the time and one out of a thousand conversations comes to well take a great woman and where would she play against a man right and like you know this sort of blew up i think a year or two ago when McEnroe publicly said serena couldn't beat the number 100 guy right he may be right but i imagine you're like we shouldn't even be having that conversation we should never have the conversation why, why should we not even engage in the conversation because it's not a conversation to be had. I mean, listen, I grew up playing boys and men all the time and beating many of them. Yeah. And and maybe not some of them because maybe they were just too strong for me. Sure. That's okay. You, you, why are we talking about the physicality strength between a male and a female? Men are supposed to be stronger, right? Serena's pretty strong. Yeah. She can beat down most of those men out there. And... You know, and, and a lot of those guys aren't used to even seeing, you know, a female hit the way that she does. You look at the Hotman Cup last year when when Serena and Roger played each other, and Roger was like, whoa, her serve <laughs> is pretty damn good, right? They both talk about each other's serves. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But what's, what's the point? 
You know, you talk about the battle of the sexes when we go back for, for Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs, one of the most important iconic matches of all time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that Absolutely. wasn't about strength. That was really about equality. Unfortunately, Billie Jean won that. But Billy was 20 years old. Um, Bobby was 20 years older than than Billy as well. People don't right? always remember. He beat Margaret Court a couple months before that. Yeah, and yeah, so he beat, it was not exactly. a foregone but, conclusion. But for Billy, she trained her ass off because yeah. she knew what she had to do. Well, she had and, a political Yeah, it was, she, she wasn't winning for, for just... Yeah, she understood this yeah, is about exactly, women and exactly, equality. This is not just about me. Exactly. Exactly. She took it on after Margaret lost. Like, I can't allow women to lose this one. I can't allow this pig to win this victory. I have to, right? I mean, I can only imagine the pressure on her shoulders. Thinking, right. Like, I got, so, I even, so even to this day, even talking about, you know, Serena playing a male player, why can't we just live, coexist and, and be equal? Yeah. Why do we always have to have that challenge? Yeah. Um, because in my, in my opinion, to, to, for him or anyone else to make that statement, to talk about that is because you want to put the woman down. Right. It's not just Serena, but it's for your set. It's for your way to say, if the male happens to win, then you don't deserve to get what you're getting. Mm. And you're, and you're and trying to put us as women in our place. Right. It's not a conversation that we should even be having. Thanks to Katrina for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. And tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garofano. Our editor is Brandon Tago, and our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. We're distributed by DCP Entertainment, and we will be back next Wednesday with another amazing person because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.